I'm Bianca Vivion, and this is Ask Viv. Goodbye. I'd wanted to do an episode for so long on goodbye. And I won't lie to you at several different instances over the course of the last four months, I sat down, fully recorded this episode, sometimes even began editing it and then walked away again. Goodbye is one of those sticky subjects. I think my generation takes particular issue with goodbye. We are so hell-bent on resolution and we're not the warring generation that would send lovers off to battle not knowing if they'd come home. We're not the generation like our parents who grew up without the constant connectivity and keeping a watchful eye on your friends and enemies and lovers and family members at all times. So even when you sever ties, you have this looking glass constantly just to see how people are growing up without you. At one point, be it the 80s, you went on a date and it didn't work out you didn't call the person back and that was enough indication that things were over but that's not us we cling so desperately we latch on and cuff ourselves to people to experiences to institutions to narratives even stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves stories that we tell the world about ourselves stories that we tell ourselves about the world. We don't know how to say goodbye. So much so that some popular narratives have even distorted goodbye, made it seem like there's some frailty involved, a weakness when we walk away from relationships and people think us cruel. People want 10,000 chances to wax poetic about the necessity of friendships. They want things to go on for as long as things can go on. And be it a graduation, a coming of age ceremony, a bat mitzvah, a wedding, a baby shower. We're more okay with people moving on without us because we can see that they're trying to do a new thing, go off to college, start a family. But then sometimes you find yourself in an era that I'm finding myself in now where the change is a lot more subtle. And I know you'll probably laugh if you know what I've been up to. You'll say, Viva television show is not subtle, but my era of goodbyes so preceded my career dealings. It was soon as the year started. As many things in life, it had begun with a desire, a desire to be somebody else. I found goodbye is such a tool. It's a tool and it has to be used so carefully and so specifically. When I was a child, I believed everything warranted a goodbye. I remember being so sick and tired of the combative and passive aggressive, what Robert Hayden in his poem, Those Winter Sundays would call the chronic angers of my house. And I remember thinking one day I'll be out of here, away from these problems and these people. And I thought that the solution to a 
fucked up home life was goodbye. Severance was my favorite weapon for a long time. I remember when I got into this crazy feud with my best friend Miles when I was in high school and we had been so close, thick as thieves, neighbors, best friends, but we got into this seemingly irreconcilable feud and I remember just being done with it. I had gotten into Columbia and I remember thinking I'm gonna go to New York and leave everyone and leave this town behind. And in some ways I did, cause I, I don't really go back to Oakland much and it's not really a place I ever really considered home. With this particular friend, I thought about how much I had depended on him, the kindness that he showed my family, how much I needed to see how he grew up. And I remember thinking that severance was going to be so easy and goodbye was that way out. But I think somewhere along maybe the second month Month, being in New York or maybe the way that the fall descended into the coldest winter I'd ever known to this day. I remember coming back home that, that first semester and thinking how silly it was that I thought I could be who I fully needed to be without this person. And that's when I knew they were my family. And, and suddenly goodbye was not the easy way out. And it was one of my first real lessons in adulthood is that I needed people. I needed some people and it wasn't for romantic love and it wasn't even for comfort it wasn't for security it wasn't for money or any of the things that i've come to garner on my own but i needed them because there's some people that they hold up a mirror to who you really are and they know you so through and through and you can't say goodbye and in my young life goodbye was the answer to everything and i would say so much of my early 20s and my early adulthood had been trying to make sure that goodbye was the answer to nothing and there were so many relationships that I clung to and I dug my nails in and I dragged them out for such a long time because it was so hard living and so hard learning and so hard being by myself and it's hard to come into success in this very haphazard and strange way that i have because you i didn't know how to say thank you for helping me i thought the only way to show gratitude was to give everybody a golden key into every era of my life i didn't know how to say thank you for loving me without entertaining the idea that I'd marry a man knowing I wouldn't. I didn't know how to say thank you for being a friend and a homegirl without saying I think this is as far as the story goes. And so I let so many people cling to me like a dragnet and I didn't want to throw any of them off the boat. Even when I felt like I was sinking, even when I knew I had a lot further to go. And so, so much of the last few years was just avoiding goodbye. And it wasn't just for them. I think I had such an obsession with authenticity. I think that I used people as witnesses to who I wanted was so I wouldn't forget. I think that's what I thought humility was. How are you gonna remember how it felt to be poor if you don't keep in contact with everybody from every hood? How are you gonna remember what it felt to be an outsider if you're an insider? And so I clung to others and I let them cling to me because I thought, what are the complications that come with goodbye? I was so afraid of forgetting all that it took to get here. I think I 
am so disgusted with the phenomena of modern celebrity and I see how it taints the art, see how much vanity is involved with the shift from someone being a real person and a real artist creating from their environment and what they see and what they know and instead just wanting to be special or so far removed from the circumstances that changed and shaped them. And I thought to say goodbye would be a negation of who I truly was. A sort of authentic person that could speak to people at eye level and make the worst of us feel dignified and the best of us feel human. And I thought I was that person because of what I had gone through or, and I wasn't ready to say goodbye to her. And there were so many people in my life that reflected that journey and that time. And so I just wanted to pull them into the fold and over the finish line for this little time before it all changed. And so I went from somebody that was so isolated growing up up and felt so alone and moved so much and had such a hard time just keeping a friend and didn't have enough friends for a birthday party for years to someone that could fill a hall full of people who said they loved me even though I felt like they didn't know me anymore. And so what did all of this teach me about goodbye? Well, I find that goodbye is a tool. It's just a tool, but it's not merely a tool. It's so critical, but it's only used and wielded well when it's combined with courage. I've learned not to say goodbye out of cowardice so I don't have to face the hard things. I've learned not to use goodbye because I'm afraid of changes or fearful of what to just around the corner. I find when matched with a little bit of courage, goodbye can be incredibly powerful because it's only through goodbye. Sometimes it's the only door that you can walk through to enter into the newness and give way to the reality of the now. I think that it's normal when things are changing and strange to want to return or maintain or cling to what felt real, what you thought love was, to friendships that felt so good when they felt so good. But I'm also realizing that I spent so much of my life struggling and surviving. A chip on my shoulder and the weight of the world was something to prove. And not out of ego, just trying to eat, just trying to see my way clear, my way forward. And I see now sometimes you are who you've had to be for so long. You never even thought about who you're supposed to be. You never thought about who you want to be. I think that to maintain, to be build any sense of camaraderie, I had to be such a giver that I sought out takers. I think I thought I had to be a martyr. And so of course I happened on those who betray. So much of this walk with time didn't see the good and goodbye. And so things lasted and outlasted their stay in my life. People who hurt me deeply. And I was so concerned with my idea of mercy and compassion and graciousness. I looked at them, my ability to keep them around, to continue to try to love them or to change them as some indication of my own holiness, of the strength of my own character, instead of just a, a waste of my goddamn time. You know, for so long, I didn't even believe time could be wasted on people. Now I need goodbye. I need goodbye with everything else that it takes. And if you saw where I've been or you knew what I'd been through, you'd be crazy. <laughs> you'd be crazy to do what I'm trying to do. I'm learning now there are so many ways to handle all that comes with both the challenges of day-to-day -day living, the upheaval of the world and the unstable global 
political situations. Everyone has their coping mechanisms and their needs and their whimsies, their addictions and their desires. No one would blame you for marrying the next person you like on the spot, rekindling that old flame and hanging out with your childhood best friends just to hold on to that sentiment and nostalgia. No one will blame you for moving back to your hometown because you just need what feels real, what feels normal, what feels kind, what feels good. No one would blame you for foregoing goodbye. I wouldn't, but I'm trying to do something crazy in a crazy time to do something crazy. And I think I've seen security and I've seen the other side of sentimentality. I've seen the folly in pretending anything in this life lasts forever. Even the best of things, even the sweetest of loves. And I'm finding what I really have, what's really mine, is me. It's the common denominator, despite all the goodbyes, I've said, despite all of the promises left unfulfilled, the disappointments and the races that I've lost, even when I was at my most depressed and my mind's absolute in seeing the darkest parts of myself, and still it was the only goodbye I could not say. Believe me, I tried. And so if she is who I have, who I really have, then I'm gonna have to do everything it takes to see her through. And I'm both unwilling and unable to enter that journey with any sense of frailty, any sense of severe self-doubt. I need to find someone in me. And so to do that, I have to say goodbye. Anybody that distorts my vision of self, anybody that makes me doubt the extent to which I'm capable of doing what I have to do. When your life is so centered around wanting better for people, bringing people to truth and empowering people. It feels like you're living life for others. Feels like every relationship has to be saved. Feels like every need coddled and every request entertained, if not fulfilled. I remember one episode saying I can do everything except for what I used to do. I can be anyone except for who I used to be. And I think I thought that that was such a singular task that I could go on doing new things and being someone new while simultaneously maintaining every relationship of every person in my life. But so much of this journey is the compounding cost of so much of what we love, so much of what was simultaneously unbearable by way of what we tolerated and what we took and yet we loved it just the same and we wanted to stay. Goodbye. I'm learning it now like I've never known it. I need it now so badly. And it's so cold. Sometimes feels so dismissive. And I think of the people that I've said goodbye to. And I'm sure some of them would like an apology. And I'm sure some parts of me are really sorry. But I wish growing up as a girl, somebody had told me that there's more important things to be as a woman than sorry. And let's just say I'm discovering those things now. And if you're anything like me, which I know you are in this time of simultaneous craze, decadence and decay, frustration and fragmentedness, 
of a society that's broken every single one of its contractual promises as if it ever meant them at all. If you're anything like me, young, in the middle, having burned so many bridges of people who said forever and didn't mean half that, I'm sure you're realizing there are better things to be than sorry, more important things to be than sorry. New promises have to be made, the most important of which we make to ourselves, and ties must be severed with both the people we were as well as the people who insist we remain the people we were. Maybe you're hearing this and thinking, what a departure of the love letters of the last 20-odd episodes. Maybe it feels so cold. I used to think the same used to love somebody and think goodbye was the worst thing in the world. But I promise this too is a love letter. This too is a love letter. Dear Viv, I recently had a friend that broke my heart in the worst way. Everyone around me tells me to let the relationship go altogether, but every part of me is saying not to. No matter how much everyone wants me to hate her, I can't. I never will. She's the closest person I've ever had in my life and I can't let that go. How do you know when love is no longer enough? It's not about love running out. It's not about waking up one day and saying, I don't love you anymore. Because oftentimes that day never comes. And there are people who I don't know anymore who my love still lingers for them in some ways. But love is measured in commitment. Islam taught me that. And I was glad because it gave me a level of clarity. All my life, I didn't know how to measure love. I thought love was a feeling. I thought it was an object. Like you, I thought it was something that you can hold and then one day you put it down and it could be discarded. But love is commitment. It's a doing thing. It's a verb. And that commitment is measured by what we sacrifice. And the problem that so many of us have, and you're having it now, is that sometimes there are some relationships that present this grand conundrum where you're asking, who am I more committed to? My love of self or my love of other? And this is a grave, grave conundrum and has such far-reaching consequences. Think about if you're Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King Jr. If your love of other surpasses the love of self, it can kill you or put you in grave straits. At some point, I just realized I wasn't willing to martyr myself for a friendship. I had a very similar question in a very similar circumstance at a time in my life where I thought, how can I let this go? All this person has given to me, maybe what I felt I owed them, all the history that we have. And I remember that person begging me to stay, to continue, because similar to yourself, they presented it as a question of, do you love me or not? When really the question was, do I love me or not? It's dangerous to measure relationships as how much we can tolerate or take. I think especially as black women, brown women, non-white women were taught to take so much. I mean, from a very young age, tolerance is the thing that we're being taught foremost. And it's almost like a punching game. I don't know if you all, when you were kids, you ever played uncle, where someone hit and hit and hit at you, and they'd only stop when you screamed uncle. And that's the game that we learn to play in our friendships and our romances and our life, just to see how much we can take. And what you're saying here is, I'm not at my limit yet. For this person, I would take more. And I'd ask for what? I think sometimes we're so curious about relationships and where they go. Some people, they were no good for me, but they were so damn interesting. The lives that 
that they led and the stories that they told. And I wanted to follow down the rabbit hole just for a little sense of adventure. Or some people, it was the opposite. They were so good for me, so comforting. A bosom to lay on, a shoulder to cry on. And I clung to them because I didn't want to do the hard things in life. I didn't want to pay my own way. I wanted every meal to be comfort food, even when it was killing me. And that necessitated goodbye. Or maybe you feel like this person is so a part of girlhood. And I've seen it time and time again. It's so sly that transition from best friend to worst enemy. And sometimes we can't believe our own eyes. We can't believe what we're hearing, the secret envies and jealousies and resentments that have been sowed and plotted in people that we braided their hair and shared our beds with. We thought that kind of backstabbing was reserved for men, for lovers. They say trauma's defined by the inability to fully piece the story together. What happened where? How did the night begin? Where did it end? Why did I wake up here? And I've always argued that heartbreak is a kind of trauma and we can't believe someone could, as you say, break our hearts in the worst way. Maybe it's because I'm not Christian. I know in the Bible they tell you, turn the other cheek, how many times, 11 times 11. But in Islam, we're taught that to turn the other cheek oftentimes is to look away. And we're taught that forgiveness is a kind of tool that you have to use very carefully and only with people that are sharing the same rule book as you. Only people who know not to take it too far. And we're taught more important than forgiveness is mercy. And I've shown so much of that. We're taught mercy and we're taught if we forgive to look our enemies in the eyes and let them know that they've been given a gift. And just because you forgive someone doesn't mean that you have to let them back to sit at the same table, to eat the same food, hold their hand along the way, nurse them up and watch them become better women. Sometimes that's foolish. This life requires so much strategy. I want it to be easy going in my life. And it's easy to be easy going when shit is going easy. I wanted to have no qualifications on my love until I reverted and I realized even God's love had qualification. And the singular qualification was belief that we could access as much mercy and compassion, as much charity and goodwill as we needed if we were believers, because belief is what constitutes real relationship. And so I say the singular question that you have to ask yourself and let it be real and let it be serious is do I still believe in you? I'm not saying that marriages can't survive infidelity and friendships can't survive certain kinds of betrayal because they have. And miraculously, things come through and people come through all kinds of seasons and reconcile. But there were people that I loved, but at a point I stopped believing in them. Sometimes lies wither away at our sense of wonder and curiosity. At first it's so adventurous, who are you really? What are we capable of together? Then suddenly you wonder a bit less. And the question instead marked in your mind is, would I be better off without you? And we have to stop measuring our own capacity for love and our tolerance for the ways that others hurt us. Jesus was a martyr for faith in God, and that's a righteous cause. MLK was a martyr for racial justice, economic justice, and that's a righteous cause. But if you want to lay down your life, your own happiness, the goodness of your days, you better be able to say that that relationship you believe 
is going to produce the best in you. Say, I need this to continue because she's going to show me something in me that I couldn't see without her. I need this love to go on because this person is a part of my tomorrow, what I imagine for my life and the wholeness and fullness thereof. I need this person because I need to see some kind of depth. They show me my beauty. They show me my talent. They show me my capacities and capabilities and I can't go on without them. There are certain people I can say, I cannot go on without you. Certain goodbyes, I truly could not cut it. I had to find a way to work it out. And not because they were so kind or so nice or so forgiving, but because some people reveal certain things about ourselves that we need them to know. There were friendships that, oh man, I thought, I thought that was sisterhood. I thought we'd go on forever in all time. Couldn't think of 25 without them, much less 40, 45 kids, graduations, proms, funerals, weddings, baby showers. I, I planned on them, but I think part of learning submission and religiosity was it wasn't as up to me as I wanted it to be. And some things, some things we must say goodbye to. And I think deep down we know it. And maybe you think you're at a crossroads and you're just in the middle of the road. It might take a long time before you really know. If your instinct is keep holding on, then by God, hold on. But if that voice in the back of your head is saying, let go, and it's growing and growing, it's only a matter of time. I'll never forget sitting across from one of my best friends, having had another blow to the heart, another trial with heartbreak from the same person. And I looked at her so sincerely, cloudless spring day in a cafe on Columbus, and I say to her, her, what do you think I should do? And she says, you're just not tired yet. I said, what do you mean? She says, you're just not tired yet. Because when you're tired enough, you'll walk away. And I think that was such a critical lesson for me that the only way that I could walk away is if I had been exhausted to my last. And I owe myself such an apology for that time in my life because now it doesn't take exhaustion. I don't get to the 12th round now. Now I've learned to play the long game and see this long stretch of life and a map of who I want to be, who I want my children to be, what I want for my family, what I desire for my life, for my finances, for my, my dreams. And more importantly than all of that, for my destiny, for what God so wants for me. And it doesn't take heartbreak even to say goodbye. Sometimes I think as black women, and I don't know if that's what you are, but as black women, sometimes I think all we've learned ever was melodrama, the worst way, the most severe. It's the folklore in us. Sometimes we find it to be the most endearing, the most justifiable endings are the ones that end in bloodshed and knife fights and full out warfare. I've learned to take the preeminent and premature exit. Sometimes it's important to honor the best of ourselves by saying goodbye, despite the fact that we wish it was another way. My friend Gerald used to tell me, you want it to be one way, but it's the other way. And I always thought that was the funniest saying. It was so simple, but he knew something I hadn't yet known. And that's what I'll leave you with. Sometimes you want it to be one way, but it's the other way. Dear Viv, as a woman of faith, how do you let go of things of this world that you are attached to that God is against? I'm struggling so much and I've become emotionally and mentally exhausted from battling the ways of the world and trying to please God. Let me say this, separately from 
faith or religiosity as i know some people that listen to this either have no interest in that or they've never or have not yet taken that journey there is freedom from addiction there's freedom from addiction there is freedom from feeling held to things, proclivities, genetic things, things that you feel bound to do, feel you have to do, or undeniable desire to do. There's freedom from those things. Faith was my avenue to freedom from those things. And not all those things were things that God was against. I had such a huge sugar addiction for most of my life. I mean, hugely. And it caused me so much pain, both physically and mentally, and so much self-judgment, weight gain and acne and just a real health battle, just centered around sugar. And I, I won't forget going to a mosque one Friday and actually making a vow and an oath to not have any candy. I said, I'm done with it and I'm letting it go. And I'm pledging this to God, which helped because I have a deep fear of God. I mean, I don't have like a casual fear. So many tenets of Islam are about the afterlife and about Yomo Kiyam and the rapture, the last days and the endings. And I said, I don't want to break this promise. And for exactly two years, two and a half years, I had no candy whatsoever and then funny enough i met my boyfriend who has such a sweet tooth and it's almost poetic the way that he brought sugar back into my life and candy and i remember feeling like i had made this deep spiritual emotional betrayal and then i thought about how i think god had wanted me to have a little bit of sweetness and i think this story lighthearted as it is and in some ways as serious as it is i think if you're going to do anything in the name of faith you have to really understand who god is I think some of us are taught that God is like the police coming to knock down our doors and strike us with lightning and punish us because that's so much of the tenets of re religiosity that we are bound to as children. And maybe it's not so malicious. Maybe we were surrounded by elder women and men who just wanted us to learn the difference between right and wrong, wanted us to have that and know it so clearly so that when we stepped out into the world, we wouldn't be swayed by the values of the world that are always trying to change us. But in trying to give us those tools and the methods are so often questionable. The drawback of that is that it distorts who God is to such a huge and great and deep extent that we find ourselves hiding in the closets of life away from a God that's just trying to bring us out of those closets. I said earlier, I found that so much of the journey of faith, the journey of my people has been from servitude to ownership. And I'm not talking strictly financial. I'm talking about all of these things that we find ourselves submitting to besides God. Alcoholism, addiction to drugs, being a slave to our own promiscuity and desires and lustfulness and greed. These things that we come to serve unbeknownst to us. Our own fears that we serve at the helm of hiding in closets full of insecurities. These little deities and idols that we make and they rule our lives and they keep us from any semblance of happiness. So caught up in what is wrong and what is bad and what is evil about ourselves that we begin to serve those things and forget altogether that the fundamental trait of God, at least as he's taught about in Islam, Rahman, Rahim, is mercy. It's mercy. 
I'm not trying to be perfect, I'm trying to be real. And when I realized that, I realized that was also all I had to be. And the more that I, I realized all I had to be was real, the more I wanted to be good. Because for a God that the bar was so low, the Quran says, God loves the steadfast. He loves the steadfast. It says that so many times, which means that one of the fundamental desires of God was for me to just be trying. You mean all I have to do is keep trying to just, it doesn't say God loves the successful. It says God loves the patient. And I realized then that studying these texts that God was playing a long game. I mean, Moses, shit, it took many, many years, lifetimes even, past a hundred. Noah, it was a brand new world. And if he was playing the long games with those people, and this is an eternal God that doesn't change, it meant he was playing the long game with me. Why is alcohol forbidden in Islam is something that people ask me often. And honestly, for a while, I didn't understand it myself. And then I read this Sufi poem, it talked about a dinner party in which one person is served alcohol and they turn into this loquacious and vibrant, anxiety-free and lovely person who's the life of the party. And then another person is served the same wine and they're turned into a mean-spirited drunk who begins to wreck the table and throw food at others. And it says that the reason that alcohol is prevented in Islam is because of its worst potential. The problem with drugs is that they work. I heard someone say once, that thing that we feel that we need our vices for to take the edge off, to reduce the anxiety, to make us feel proud or make us feel beautiful or make us feel wanted, they work. And soon the edges are all rounded out and we're so far from who we really are, we don't know what to do. We're so deeply comforted, we're numb, or we don't know how to function without it, and then it's an idol. Don't know how to cope without it, and then it's God. We need it, we'll do anything to get it. I wasn't gonna stop doing anything in the name of God until I knew who God was. The first step and the first real triumph of my faith came in real theological study. I mean, I know the Quran. Shit, I know the Bible too well. I can go surah for surah and hadith for hadith and verse for verse and chapter for chapter, book by book, because I know my, I know the rules I break every day. I'm not perfect. I'm not trying to be, I'm not going to desecrate the name of my religion by pretending that I'm even close to the ideal Muslim, but I know my God and I know he's going to meet me every single time at every single battle exactly where I'm at. And sometimes it's better and it's always better. <laughs> If I show my full hand and the weaknesses that I'm dealing with and I take them to prayer, to solitude and meditation because that way I don't need people to understand. I don't need people to withhold judgment. You can laugh at me, I'm struggling, I'm going through some things because I know a God who welcomes my deficiencies and insecurities and shortcomings because he knows me. One of my favorite things I've ever heard from one of my favorite imams, he said, God sent the prophet because he loved who we might become. I think it's why it's so important believing for me that Jesus was a man, believing in the prophet Muhammad and the lineage of the prophets because knowing that these were men shows the kind of investment that God would put into man just to see who they could be for others. I wasn't without my own addictions, but the more I began to attempt the battle to put those things away, the more I realized that what you do is not who you are. And the more that I learned who God was, the more I began to unlock the key to myself, the more that I stopped doing things because 
I didn't want to see rock bottom. Didn't take a sip at the party because I wasn't so curious anymore whether or not I was the guy throwing food at the table or the one who became interesting and outgoing and poetic. I became less curious about evil, to be honest. Yeah, when I was younger, I wanted to go to every party. Just last week, it was, oh, fashion week. I don't put myself in certain environments anymore because I'm not curious about the rabbit hole. I've seen how far down it goes. I think some of us that grow up in the worst of circumstances, some of us who weren't granted suburban bliss and we couldn't hit rock bottom to such a certain extent because no one was coming for us, knew if we were in jail, we were just gonna sit there, knew if we shot ourselves up, we would just be one more person on the block doing that. It wasn't edgy or interesting or cool. In fact, quiet as it's kept, it was expected. God loved who we might become. Self-love, the steadfast patience that we offer ourselves, sometimes it's not for who we are. Sometimes we're no good in what we're doing. We don't need to justify it. I'm not here to judge you, but we know it's bad. But I love who you might become free from that and the truth is if I hadn't done some things and been some places and had some memories that I'd rather look away from now there'd be no ask Viv I think it was always real cute when I was growing up in church and they would bring some kid, some prodigy to say a prayer or sing a gospel song and it was nice for the Christmas pageant it was nice for the Easter Sunday show. But don't bring me a boyhood preacher now because the innocent can't do anything for anybody. I think if anything, as much as I fall short of the perfection of Islam, sometimes I feel most primed to stand on the corner and talk about how the rapture is coming. Sometimes I feel most primed to preach about it because it brought me out. I wasn't raised by a mother that covered her head or submitted to her husband. I wasn't brought up by the righteous. It's so important what I've done to what I'm doing now. I prove that. The worst of us still have a chance. One of my favorite things my preacher used to say growing up is, they hated me based on speculation and God loved me with the evidence. When you get tired, that's when the fight begins. And it's good because you don't always win the fight in the first battle. Sometimes you get high and you like it. And maybe you've done that for years. And then all of a sudden one day you get high and you don't like it so much. And nearly, almost never, very seldom is the same day that you get tired also the same day that you put the shit down. I mean, for some people, miraculously, that's the case. Some of us, the first time we get caught is the last time, but other of us, that's actually day one of the fight. And that fight breeds a curiosity that maybe there's something better and realer and different out there for us. And then suddenly we're presented over a long course of time, a vision of who we really might be without the things that we swore we needed, our vices, our sins. And all of a sudden, one day, quietly, like a thief in the night, not with a bang, but a murmur, we wake up someone new and find out that that was the plan all along. What a beauty to live to tell the story. Having done what we thought was the worst, <laughs> having thought ourselves unredeemable and yet living to tell 
the story. Dear Viv, I've been battling insecurities for a while now. I finally come to a place of complete healing, but every time I'm almost there, I go back. How do you deal with insecurities and breaking your thinking patterns? You know, the greatest gift I've been given in this last year of my life has been therapy. Good old Freudian psychotherapy. I never knew how much I needed it. And it's become so central to my life. I used to laugh when people would reference their inner child. I thought it was some hotep psycho babble bullshit, truth be told. I was so ashamed of my inner child. I judged her so much and I thought that she was petulant and irrational, unreasonable and needy. And I thought that becoming a woman, which has been the framing and substratum of so much of this show about that journey from girlhood to womanhood and childhood to adulthood meant just short of killing her off. I mean, maybe I wanted her whimsy and her creativity, but I said to hell with the rest of her. Didn't want her insecurities and her fears. I didn't want them ruling me. And so I was strict with her. I wanted to constrict the voice that she was in my head. And I think when we deal with our inner child in that way, it's just an extension of our childhood. Ironically, we're seeking to end out our childhood, but yet we're punishing our inner child the way that the world and our parents and our caretakers punished us. And therapy, just me talking about my day and my week and my family and my thoughts and my career and how things were going revealed her to me and brought her to the forefront of so many problems because so much of that therapy was my therapist asking, so when did this start? When did you begin to think this about yourself? Why, how did this happen? And it would be innocent things. I remember the second session I ever had with her, I said, you know, I'm not a sentimental person. And she said, well, when did you begin to believe that? And I said, no, that's a fact. I'm not a sentimental person. And I realized that for me, I had associated sentimentality with weakness because growing up, I was forced to move a lot or I would be evicted a lot. And so I wasn't allowed to carry the teddy bear and the first tooth and the first pair of shoes and every picture of myself I had ever had and my childhood cheerleading uniform and my ballet slippers because there just wasn't any room. There was no place to put it. I had to say goodbye. And so I began to believe that sentimentality was weak. And I remember insulting my, my eldest sister who's such a sensitive soul. And I would say, you're too sentimental. Your values are in the wrong place. And I thought that that was adulthood, but really it was a childhood insecurity about believing that I couldn't take anything with me, that nothing could stay. So I said to hell with all of it and called that growing up. Ironically, now I'm the one person in my entire life I know that keeps photo albums. I just printed 200 fresh new photos just last week from my trip in Greece and my time in Puerto Rico this summer. I'm deeply sentimental. I buy souvenirs where I go and I send my family gifts on every single holiday, even the ones I don't personally celebrate. I'm deeply sentimental and it's not a weakness, it's a gift. And I realized with that, that what my inner child needed was was not to be pushed aside in this way. It wasn't to be re repressed or suppressed or silenced. 
because I got enough of that as a kid just living with the anger of my father's house. And I think so much of this, it's tied up to religiosity because, you know, in Corinthians, in the Bible, it says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I acted as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And I was so obsessed for such a long time about the putting away because I thought that your inner child is the price that you pay for becoming who you truly are. But I think in this critical time of psychotherapy and a lot of courage of just remembering, I find that rather than treating her like a burden upon my back, someone carrying the weight of the past, instead I've decided to take her and walk beside her and justify her. I think so many of our insecurities come from this real need to feel justified. For someone to say, that's a completely reasonable way to feel. I remember a few weeks ago, my fridge broke and I was so pissed because this fridge was only a year old, had out the warehouse just last summer. And I came home from many weeks on vacation and it was broken and hundreds of dollars of my expensive organic whole foods had spoiled and I was very angry with the maintenance in my building and I was feeling so angry I literally felt like a child because they told me it was going to take weeks to fix it. So I'm sitting here in my childhood stupor and the first instinct that I had was to just say no, don't be angry and I tried to calm her down. I tried to tell her she was being irrational, that these people didn't break the fridge, that they couldn't rushed to fix it and I tried to tell her that if I was an adult I would just sit there and take it and then suddenly I heard my therapist voice in my head and I realized no this is a reasonable situation to be angry at frustrating deeply it's a super inconvenience and instead of suppressing her or feeling like she was burdening me on top of everything I had to deal with. Instead, I sat there and I said, you know what, we're angry. But instead of letting her act out on her anger and cuss somebody out or cry to my maintenance man or throw a hissy fit because none of that was going to do anything for adult me. I meditated on it for a bit. I got real angry. I might have cried. In fact, I think I did as I do often. And then I called up my building maintenance and I said, I can't wait. You're going to have to buy a new one. And you know what they said? They said, you're right. We'll buy a new one. The next day they, they brought a new one. And I think that I'm learning rather than trying to say this forceful goodbye to my inner child rather than try to rid myself of every insecurity rather than trying to kill myself at the gym and be on the treadmill 24 7 or say goodbye to every kind of carb and comfort food and dessert and try to be that perfect person instead I'm walking beside her, justifying her fears, but not letting her stop me from doing what I really have to do, which is live. For a long time, I was really fearful, despite the fact that my greatest desire had been to sell this TV show. I was so afraid to be in front of a camera. I'd grown up around a mom who always looked perfect. In fact, just behind her back at her office job growing up, they called her Barbie. And of course, that was to belittle her, but it's just to give you all a sense of the kind of felt perfection I thought of my mom to have as a kid. And she was slender and 
yet shapely and her hair was perfect. Growing up, my mom had two closets, one just for her shoes and her evening gowns and the other for her daily wear, all her own. And she was coveted by every single man from the prince of the palace to the random beat cop on a traffic stop. And just seeing that, yeah, sometimes it was inspiring, but mostly it engendered this fear in me to be perfect and to look perfect, despite the fact that the show that I wanted, it was supposed to really be about thinking and ideas, trying to save the culture from this degradation and Byzantine notions of beauty and art theory. And I wanted it to be about the mind, but I couldn't get over the fact that so much of this shit is about the body. I don't want to go on TV and be overweight or have a hair out of place. And I tried to tell myself that was silly, that that was irrational. Then I tried to tell myself, all you got to do is lose the weight. And for a while I did, and then I gained it back, and then I lost it again. And I was in that cycle for many years just while trying to sell the show. And it wasn't irrational. Look at where we live. Look at what we see. Look at the extent that people will go to just to feel beautiful for a man much less a nation, much less a network. And so I stopped telling myself that it was crazy and I've done what I've had to do. I keep the personal trainer, I keep the gym membership, I still go nearly every day, but I've shifted my mindset from thinking that there was something so wrong with being insecure. There's nothing wrong with feeling insecure. There's nothing wrong with feeling like you're falling short. There's nothing wrong with looking in the mirror some days and being like, damn, I'm just not feeling it. It's so human, it's crazy. I justify that. And I hope that you'll justify yourself by saying it's reasonable to feel the pressure of the world coming at your doorstep. But I'm also done feeling inhibited by it to the voices in my head telling me that there's things about me that are just not enough. I'm finished with that. That I've had to say goodbye to because there are important things that I have to do and there's somebody that I have to be. And insecurities are a fact of the matter and they're always going to be there. I know that we feel we can defeat them completely, but more I think of them as a song that's on constant replay and really the control we have is not to turn it off. Really, it's are we going to turn the volume up or are we going to turn the volume way down? I don't want to miss something in my life. Not just an opportunity, but also the joy to experience it. Am I going to do the show? Of course I am because I have to, but I also want to be able to watch it and enjoy it and love it. 2020, I, I had the honor of shooting my first feature in the Amsterdam news. And I remember being so afraid that morning that I woke up three hours early to curl my hair and pick out my outfit. I went and bought a new one with money I did not have at the time. Just as I'm getting out the car, just as I'm getting out the car, I get hit with this crazy winter wind as I'm waiting in front of the building for someone to buzz me in. And my curls had fallen. And I remember I wore the wrong undershirt for the sheer shirt that I had and it showed too much cleavage. So I begged the woman who did the interview to let me retake the photos, but she was just an intern and she was going back to college in DC the next day. And so she wasn't even in town. And she said, no, no, we'll have to go with the ones that we took. And I remember feeling mortified and 
just wanting another chance. I was so insecure. I remember not even wanting to tell anybody when it came out, despite the fact that I felt so proud of the moment. Six weeks ago, I was standing in front of my door, my front door, and that article hangs on a separate wall from the wall where I have every other professional photo and article I've ever done. It's in a dark corner on the other wall in front of my front door. And I looked at it the other day just while I was waiting for some Chinese food to come. And I really looked at it and I said, damn, that's a good photo. And it's not that the insecurity kept me from taking the photo, but I think about how much it kept me from enjoying that moment. I thought about how much self-consciousness I had about the cleavage and the print and my curls falling. And all of this almost kept me from the fact that the interview was so good and so real, that it was such a historical thing to be featured in the same paper as W.E.B. Du Bois and Malcolm X and Barack Obama. Sometimes the issues with insecurity is not what they keep us from doing or not doing but the way that they constrict our living and make it so small and you don't have to turn down the volume because it's going to keep you from a promotion because I know plenty of insecure people with very coveted life positions I know plenty of insecure people in beautiful romances with beautiful partners that anybody would want I know plenty of insecure people with plenty of money in the bank it's not that it keeps you from living it's that it keeps you from living well and one thing that I promised myself, having seen my heroes like Toni Morrison, who said right before she died, I regret it all, is that some of us can live great and glorious lives where we do so much for other people. I mean, that woman gave me so much, but through our insecurities and the voices in our own head, we can rob ourselves of so much. I've always had such a sense of duty to others that I haven't let my insecurities keep me from serving them. But it's high time in my life that I started living for me. You gotta silence it and find whatever way to make yourself feel good because you don't want to miss out on the best of you. You gotta let it go to give yourself the best of yourself because it's what you're truly owed. I've lived a life that even if it ended tomorrow, I can say I've lived. I've done incredible things. I've given so much of myself to the causes, been charitable with my heart and my work and my spirit. And I always said it was for the good of others while simultaneously suffering, just beating myself up in my own head over the ways I thought that I wasn't enough. I think it's high time that I get the best of me. And it's a beautiful time to be insecure because there are plus size women on the cover of Vogue because the glass ceiling and the high gates and the barbed wire fences of beauty and weight and height coming down in such a real and forceful way and the critics will tell you some of them the smarter ones the ones that are better than me they'll tell you it's all bullshit and it doesn't matter seeing a size 12 on a vogue cover or a size 14 or they'll say that it's all just the same but it mattered to me i think that what we're saying goodbye to in society at this time is a world in which Insecurities can be a serious excuse for foregoing your own destiny. You're gonna see me, is what I've learned to say. I used to laugh. There was these comedians when I was a kid I would watch, and they'd say, we're not smart, we're not good, we're not right, we're not beautiful. 
but we're here, we're here. And I think that's so powerful because whether or not I was smart enough or good enough or any of these things that I believed about myself, the truth is now I am here at the same tables that maybe I believed I didn't deserve to be at, in the same rooms, neck and neck and arm in arm with the same people that I once thought were better than me or prettier than me. So I better start justifying myself because none of those insecurities were strong enough to keep me out of the room. But I know now if I don't let some of them go or get some of them under control or pipe some of them down, they are surely going to keep me from enjoying being there. And one thing I owe myself is the pleasure of my own company. And I've removed all the people that amplify those insecurities. Men that don't make me feel absolutely gorgeous. I used to keep around some people that I thought were so smart and I wanted their opinion on so many things, even though I knew that they made me feel stupid and I had to let them go. Kept around people that I thought were so stylish, had all of the newest stuff. Remember, felt like I had to justify if I was wearing a, a Hanes t-shirt instead of Givenchy or and I had to let them go because I had to find a way to live. I gotta find a way to live for me. And I'm sure some of those people thought we got along so well and they're so curious now, wondering where it all went wrong. Do what makes it easy for you to breathe. Do what makes it easy for you to breathe. Justify yourself. People want you to calm down, want you to act rational in a tumultuous and irrational time if you're insecure then that's a fact of the matter and i don't know how you want to go about it and i know sometimes you've done every single i am powerful i am good mantra in the mirror done every single manifestation ritual that there is to do did every diet in the book before you're like, fuck it, I wanna get the surgery. I'm not here to tell you how to live. I know I called it Ask Viv and sometimes maybe the name fooled you. I'm just telling you, you have to live. Find a way. If there's people that gotta go, let them go. If there's things you gotta do, do it. Take the hand of the girl you used to be and walk her forward and talk her up so you can be the woman that you like. I know we preach self-love. I've been preaching it myself to you for years, but maybe it's just now amongst all of my goodbyes and the severance that I've done, taking the knife out of my own back and cutting some ties with it that I've begun to like myself. And I'm sure I look crazy to some people, but to do the shit I'm trying to do, you would have to be. I took hold of my insecurities, took hold of that inner child and hugged her deeply so that I could like myself. And whatever dance we're doing now together between therapy, between exercise, sometimes just between shopping for a dress that really fits, we're coming out okay. And I'm so curious to find out who I, who I really am, who I'm becoming aside from all of those things I never thought I'd get over. The self-doubt, self-loathing and judgment, fraught and terrible relationships, the good and stagnant relationships. And I've begun to reveal somebody I really like. And I wish you that. I wish you that at least. 
And if you need somebody to talk you up, and if you need somebody to talk you out, and if you're just listening to this because the day is hard and you need somebody to get you over, I'm here and I'm still here. And with you so far from goodbye, I'm Bianca Vivion. And if you ever need anything at all, you can always ask Viv. Some of them want to break you down, steal your crown. Use and abuse you. Some of them smile in your face Cause they hurt it someplace You got more than they're used to Some of them want to steal your love Oh, cause they're jealous of I've been living and giving I keep moving forward Pressing onward Striving further I keep Keep on laughing Keep on living Keep on loving, yeah I keep Keep on dreaming Keep on achieving Keep on believing I keep, I keep smiling Thank you.